Malloy Show, UltimateSportsTalk.com radio studios. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Ultimate Sports Talk Show, our weekly get-together to talk about the world of sports and what is happening and give you my opinion on each and everything that we talk about during the evening. And tonight we are also going to be talking about NHL hockey with our UltimateSportsTalk.com National Hockey League expert, John Hartsmark, about the Columbus Blue Jackets getting a new head coach just seven games into the NHL regular season. Also tonight on the show, the Mets are in the World Series. Tristan Thompson is signed, but what the heck was this holdout all about? The punt heard around the world, and Team USA is going to have a new Olympic basketball coach. But first... Well, believe it or not, the New York Mets are the first team to make the World Series this year. They accomplished that feat last night at Wrigley Field over the Chicago Cubs when they defeated the Cubs to complete a four-game sweep in the National League Championship Series. CBS Sports' Dave Brown reported after the game last night about Daniel Murphy, who was the MVP of the series, and the New York Mets moving on. They have swept the Chicago Cubs in the NLCS. They beat them Wednesday night at Wrigley Field for a four-game sweep, and the Mets are going back to the World Series for the first time in 15 years. The Cubs uh, had a wonderful season. They won 97 games. They beat the Pirates in the wild card game and the Cardinals in the division series, but they're falling short uh, this season. Again, they haven't won the whole thing. They haven't been to the World Series since 45 and haven't won since 1908. Uh, but the Cubs definitely under Theo Epstein and Jed Hoyer are getting close. The Mets, on the other hand, are there. They have uh, done what nobody thought they could do pretty much at the beginning of the season. Daniel Murphy, uh, did he hit another home run tonight? What do you think? Did he or didn't he? It came down to the last at bat, but he did. Daniel Murphy hit a home run for the sixth straight game, which is a record in the majors for the postseason. Nobody had ever done it before. Murphy had tied Carlos Beltran. Uh, who hit five straight home runs in 2004. Murphy hit his fifth last night and his sixth tonight. Kind of the icing on the cake for the Mets. They got a big three-run homer early in the first inning. Lucas Duda went deep to give Steven Matz some cushion. Uh, Matz pitched into the fifth inning, and the Mets' bullpen took it from there with uh, Jury's Familia finishing up in the ninth. And the Mets are going to the World Series for the first time in 15 years. They have to await the winner of the uh, Blue Jays' Uh, uh, Royal Series, which is still continuing in Kansas City. It'll, it'll go on for at least one more game tomorrow, if not two, and the World Series doesn't begin till next week. So the Mets have some time to decompress after celebrating. In the meantime, the Toronto Blue Jays and Kansas City Royals are heading back to Kansas City for Game 6 of the American League Championship Series after the Blue Jays win yesterday to stay alive three games to two. Again, Dave Brown reports. The Toronto Blue Jays are not dead yet. Facing elimination against the Kansas City Royals, the Blue Jays won 7-1 to on Wednesday behind Marco Estrada. The right-hander was brilliant against the Royals, who had been setting records for runs scored and batting average in the postseason, but Estrada allowed just three hits and a run. Uh, the home run, a home run to Sal Perez in the eighth inning. He faced the minimum, minimum number of batters through six, one over the minimum through seven. And, the, the, and save the Blue Jays' bullpen. Uh, David Price had to warm up a couple times in the 6th and 7th inning, but he did not come in, which is huge for the Jays. Not only did they have to win this game, they have to win the rest of the games, and in order to do that, they're probably going to have to have uh, Price fully rested and the bullpen uh, more or less rested, and that's what Estrada was able to do. Uh, the Blue Jays' offense was patient and then tenacious when it had to be against Edinson Volquez, who had terrific stuff, was throwing in the upper 90s with his fastball, but the Jays were spoiling out a, pitch, a lot of pitches with fouls, and they were drawing walks in the sixth. Ben Revere started out with a walk after Josh Donaldson was hit with a pitch. Uh, Jose Batista uh, had a 10-pitch at bat against Volquez and drew a walk, got a really close call in the corner. It was a terrific uh, battle. Uh, Edwin and, Car- and Carcione... Uh, follows with a bases-loaded walk, and then Troy Tulowitzki clears the bases. Tulowitzki had been struggling at the start of the playoffs, but has been seven, has, uh, is 7 for 14 over his past four games. So he's heating up, and seven RBIs are included in that. So the, uh, the Blue Jays are getting some timely hits out of Tulowitzki, which is what they need. And now they go back to Kansas City for game six with David Price. It's still a long shot for them. The Royals are probably a 30% historical favorite to win the series after uh, being up three games to two. 
and especially with the home field advantage. But the Blue Jays are still in it. It's still a very good series. If you would have put money on a World Series that included the New York Mets and anybody else, you would have made a bundle in Las Vegas. If you would have said that Don Mattingly would be let go as manager of the Los Angeles Dodgers and put money on that at the beginning of the year, if the Dodgers weren't one of the teams in the World Series, you would have been right because the Dodgers and Don Mattingly mutually decided to part ways today. Mattingly led the team to its third consecutive National League Western Division title this year, but the Dodgers lost in the NLDS for the second consecutive season. CBS Sports' John Heyman reports on how this transpired. Well, my understanding is that they had a conversation uh, yesterday in which they decided to mutually uh, part ways. I think uh, while they all got along, I think the front office liked Don Mattingly very much. Uh, I, I don't think that uh, there was a long-term support for him. Uh, I think he felt that, and uh, I think they decided that uh, it's better to move on now. Um, and that was basically it. Um, I knew I've heard some complaints from some people uh, connected to the Dodger front office that uh, they didn't get any hits with runners in scoring position against the Mets. Uh, didn't do what they could to move the runners over, and there were some complaints along those strategic lines, uh, perhaps. Uh, but I think uh, they recognized that uh, Mattingly did great in the clubhouse, uh, solved a lot of potential issues, put out a lot of brush fires, d- did very well there. And I think they recognized the fact that they didn't really adequately replace uh, Ryu and McCarthy when they went down, and that really hurt the team. And many thought, John, that it would be the Dodgers and not the Mets playing in the World Series. As for the Dodgers, what's next for them? Who could they be targeting as their next manager? You know, I, I've seen the speculation of Gabe Kapler, and uh, this regime did hire him to be a farm director for them, and I think they like him very much. Um, he's not a guy with any experience, but he's a guy who certainly knows uh, all the Sabre issues and a very uh, quick learn, and uh, I think they're very comfortable with him. So uh, I'm speaking speculatively, but uh, I think Gabe Kapler, uh, former Red Sox and Ray, uh, could make some sense. That would be a possibility. An obvious name would be uh, Bud Black, who uh, did a nice job in nine years with San Diego uh, with a small market team and um, won two managers of the year. I think uh, uh, he was doing better than the two managers that replaced him, really won, to be fair. Met Pat Murphy came in and uh, didn't win as many games as uh, Bud Black. So I, I think he's a very good manager. Um, he does know some people in the L.A. front office, and uh, those would be my two names for speculation today, but this is pretty early in the game. As for Don Mattingly, John, you've been reporting for months that if and when he became available, the Miami Marlins would certainly be interested. Is he the front runner to land the job in Miami? Uh, in a word, yes. I, I do expect that uh, they're going to show some strong interest in Mattingly. Uh, we will see um, how interested he is in going there. Obviously, he knows Joe Girardi well. Girardi was fired after one year and was the manager of the year. The one year he was in Miami, I uh, knows Tino Martinez, who didn't last very long as the hitting coach. But uh, I, I think Mattingly uh, might like the fact that uh, with the Marlins, uh, the front office isn't going to uh, make so many suggestions with a lineup card as, as they do in L.A. And that's just the way of the world right now with uh, with a lot of front offices. But uh, fewer suggestions, maybe more authority in terms of uh, coaching staff, maybe a, a bigger long-term commitment. I think that probably would be refreshing for him to, to really be the king rather than uh, just a pawn. I, I mean, pawn may be an exaggeration, but uh, uh, you know, it probably felt that way at times in, in L.A. Uh, it's clearly driven by the front office uh, and the new general manager who's been there now a year, Andrew Friedman. Um, so, uh, you know, I think for Mattingly, uh, he should land on his feet fairly quickly. And uh, if I were to guess, we know the Marlins are kind of holding up their uh, their search for a manager for this. So it looks uh, very likely that uh, he's got a shot there. Well, certainly with teams like Miami and even in Cleveland, if you would leave the managerial situations alone out of the front office and leave it into the hands of the manager... I think a lot more teams would probably win. I understand what John Heyman is saying there. In five seasons as the Dodgers manager, Mattingly's record was a winning one, 446 wins, 363 losses during the regular season, but he was just 8-11 and 11 during the postseason. And pitcher Dan Heron thanked baseball on his way out, making his retirement official shortly after the Cubs were swept out 
by the Mets last night. Heron said on Twitter he was taking off the uniform for the final time after 30 years in baseball, and he said a big thank you. Heron had revealed his decision after winning his final start of the regular season, saying he'd stay ready in case the Cubs needed him in the playoffs. John Tortorella's hiring in place of the fired Todd Richards by the Columbus Blue Jackets was a needle-moving moment for the franchise. In his first news conference as the team's coach, Tortorella faced questions about whether he had softened his intense style. Whom better to talk about the coaching change with the Columbus Blue Jackets than our ultimate sports talk.com hockey expert, John Hartsmark. John, thanks for joining us tonight. How are you? I'm well. Thanks for having me on. It's great to have you on. Always when we want to talk about hockey, we bring you on. And Todd Richards is out as coach of the Blue Jackets. John Totorella is in as the coach now. First of all, why was this change needed so early in the season? Um, I think the Blue Jackets sort of drank the Kool-Aid, as they say. They believed the hype. You know, they got Brandon Saad from the, uh, from the Blackhawks, gave up Marco Dano um, in their deep, deep prospect pool, and they didn't really address the need on defense. They got really good, solid defensemen. But the way they were playing just didn't seem that they were missing one or two pieces. And also, because of that, Bobrovsky um, was not playing up to his normal standards. Because of that, I feel that uh, they needed to make a change of the voice, per se. They needed someone who's just going to, you know, be a no BS type of coach and make sure that they run the system, run everything they need to do. And I think that's why they brought a guy like John Tortorella in. And unfortunately, Richards is now out. Well, you mentioned they drank the Kool-Aid. Are you saying that the Blue Jackets are overestimating their talent? They're not as good as what they think they may be? Not necessarily that. They are a very, very talented bunch. I think that they just got a little complacent, like, oh, yeah, we're really good. And so they sort of maybe thought that they could not have to play 100% all the time and sort of, um, you know, didn't put their foot on the gas once the puck dropped realized, oh, God, we're down, down, we need to start playing. So they sort of believed the hype, and because of that, maybe didn't come out as hard as they, they did, and that's an easy thing to then point to as a coach saying, hey, you didn't get your guys ready. John, is Totorella the right man for the job? Right now, I believe he is. Just because of what he brings to the table, he has experience. He's been successful, you know, not as much as, probably the New York media would have hoped when he was with the Rangers, but the but the attitude he brings, the toughness that they bring, and the, the way that he he won't tolerate the way they play. So he's going to get them to play at their top level as much as they can. And right now, that is what the Blue Jackets need. Over the course of a couple seasons and on, in the long term, I don't know, because it seems that he's a more of an old-school approach. He'll get your face and really let you know what's going going wrong. And I don't know if that's what they need with the young team. But right now, his attitude of coaching is what they desperately need right now. Is is John Totorello the type of coach, you say old school coach, where he kind of burns himself out very quickly with a team? Exactly. He is the one, you know, he gives great press conferences because he tells it like it is. But after two, three, or four years, he's sort of giving you the same message over and over again. And in this day and age, if you just start repeating yourself and start, you know, giving the same old messes all the time, they start to not listen, disengage. And so, yeah, after a while, he just burns burns all the bridges that you need to keep going in order to continually improve and continually get better as a team. But the Blue Jackets signed him to a three-year deal. Was that something that he actually demanded before coming on board, or is this a sign that the Blue Jackets are completely bought into what he can bring to this program. I think this whole three-year deal, it's sort of the standard operating procedure. I mean, even though it's a three-year deal, it probably doesn't mean that he will potentially be there at the end of this year or even next year. It's sort of the, you know, you don't sign coaches necessarily to a one-year deal. It's just, you know, the sort of the standard operating procedure to have a longer-term deal. I think he'll stick around for a couple of years. And then once the team starts wavering again, they'll probably have to make a change to 
uh, John Cooper type coach or, um, you know, someone with a different voice. You know, Totorella took Tampa Bay to a Stanley Cup. He can't, took the Rangers very close to a Stanley Cup. What happened in those two spots, John, that, that caused him to just flame out in a hurry? Um, he flamed out in a hurry in uh, Tampa Bay just because of the the market they were in at the beginning. They weren't a team like the North that has a lot of money, so they had to get rid of some of their better better top-tier players. And so they were having to rebuild, and he is maybe not the best coach for rebuilding. In New York, it's a combination of the New York media. I mean, you know how the Jets and Giants fans and the Yankee fans, how they are, how the New York media is with the Knicks and everything. And so it was sort of with, well, you haven't won a Stanley Cup yet. You've done really well. You've led us to conference finals and playoffs. And apparently that just wasn't good enough. But it was also they needed to bring in some young talent. And the way that he deals with young talent is dealing with with them as if they're the Grizzly veterans where they can deal with someone getting in their face instead of saying, hey, this is what you're doing wrong. You need to do this, 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 and this. In the situation, he just yells at you like, hey, what are you doing wrong? And so I think that he burned the bridges of communication and getting the development with the team there. He just, his message wasn't getting through to them anymore. Well, what has he got to do with this team? What have you seen out of this Blue Jackets team that he needs to do to get them on the right track and into a into a playoff spot by the end of the year? First things first is he's got to shore up the defense. The defense has offensive firepower, but they are they're playing sort of lackadaisical on their own end. They're not able to get the puck out. They're allowing too much puck possession, and because of that, they're putting so much pressure on Bobrovsky. Bobrovsky is a very solid goaltender. I mean, he's shown that he can winning games if you give him the defense and they're letting him down by giving up those quality grade-A chances. They need to do that. Then they just need extra motivation. They need to light that fire from the moment the puck drops. And, you know, they've got so much talent in Johansson and Atkinson and Polino and Jack Johnson and Brandon Saad. You know, they've got so much talent and they just sort of need to rally together, play with cohesion, and, you know, play the way that they have played because the Blue Jackets have been an ultra-competitive team They've been a team that, even though they've missed the playoffs, they've been right there, and if they got in, they could do some damage. They just sort of need to tweak the defensive system, and they just need to play play at the level that they can and that they know that they're capable of. Well, not only are the Columbus Blue Jackets 0-7, they're probably not as bad as their record indicates, and they make a coaching change, but the Montreal Canadiens, John, are 7-0. and Are they as good as their record indicates? Well, when you got Carey Price and P.K. Subban and Max Pacioretty and some other guys, you're always going to be competitive, but I really think they're for real. Um, I always thought that they had all this amazing talent. Um, I always questioned whether or not Tarion was the right man, but he seems to have, you know, he seems to have found something because they're playing almost perfect hockey every phase of the night, and then Carey Price is Carey Price. Um, right now, they're for real. It will remain to be seen if they can, you know, keep this going. They're going to lose eventually. No one will go 82-0. and 0. But, I mean, they are, they're coming out with a fire and a passion. They sort of realize, you know, it's been since 94, since they won a cup and since Canada's won a cup, that they may just have the nation's anger and desire to get the Stanley Cup back to Canada, that that's why they're just playing at such a high level. And they finally have a captain. They named Max Pacioretty captain. Um, and so they finally have the guy wearing the C on on their uh, on his chest, and so maybe that's just bringing that extra oomph because now it's like okay, we've got a leader, we've got a guy that you know had a leg injury and has come back before um, at the start of the season. That basically it's like, look, it's now or never. Well, after the first couple weeks of the season, John Hartsmark, our guest here tonight on the show, after the first couple weeks of the season, John, what do you think has been? The, the main theme of this season so far? Speed and scoring. It's amazing how how fast everyone's playing. And even in overtime, now that there's three-on-three, three, it's basically creating just open ice. Um, so I've seen, I'm seeing much more speed. And I'm also seeing a lot of young, young star players. You know, Connor McDavid is being what Connor McDavid is. I mean, you saw, everybody saw him at Erie. He was a clear-cut number one. Jack Eichel is playing right there with him. He might even have better numbers than McDavid. You've got Anthony Duclair and Max Domi in Arizona. Dylan Larkin is doing what 
not many people in Detroit do, which is going straight from college and juniors to the pros, and he's now playing on a great line with Applicator and Zetterberg. You know, there's this young talent that's coming up through the ranks, Noah Hannafin with Carolina. And so you're seeing this new generation of talent mixed in with the Taves, the Tavareses, and, you know, the Stamkoses and Crosbys that you're really seeing just the epitome of offensive hockey and young speed and young open open playing. It's really been fun to watch. Well, John, your team, the Blackhawks, won the Stanley Cup a year ago. They're 3-3 three and three right now, so... Are they on par? Are they playing Blackhawks hockey right now? Where do they stand? Um, they're playing the way that I thought they'd be playing. They're probably definitely not playing Blackhawk hockey to what Kane Taves and even what Quenville wants, but you know they had to make some really tough decisions. And now they've lost Duncan Keith. Duncan Keith played with a meniscus tear through the first six games, and now he's out four to six weeks. Um, but they have a lot of young youngsters coming up. Uh, they've got, you know, Victor Tikhonov coming back from Russia. Artemi Panarin is, you know, just showing that he's on a great line with Kane. Um, they've got some youngsters, but their defense, once again, is um, they are lacking depth. Quenville has always talked that in an organization you need about 10 guys that could play out any given night, and he was definitely noncommittal when they asked him, do you have those 10? I know Bowman's actively shopping for defensemen. Um, they did sign Trevor. They did get Trevor Daly at a trade when they traded Patrick Sharp to free up some cap room. Um, I think that it's tough to say whether they're on par. Um, I mean, they're not playing terrible. They're not, you know, one in six, but they do have a little bit higher level to go. And it remains to be seen whether they'll be able to repeat in this day and age. You know, no one's done it since '98. Um, they've got the talent to do so, and. Um, I always think the Blackhawks' uh, mantra is make it to the playoffs and turn it off a couple notches. So it remains to be seen. But right now, to me, they're playing a way that they would be playing with all the changes they had to make. Well, how about two of the other original six, the Red Wings and the Boston Bruins? They they seem to be struggling in the early part of the year. Yeah, um, I knew the um, I knew both teams might struggle a little bit. I mean, when you lose a guy like Mike Babcock, the guy that has won everywhere he goes. Um, and you bring in a guy like Jeff Blaschel, who, um, you know, is co- uh, coach of the Grand Rapids Griffins, uh, their AHL team. They were going to take a step back. They've also been on this, you know, ungodly run of, you know, 24, 25 years straight making the playoffs that they were going to take a regression. And it's one of those times where they're sort of at a tipping point. You know, Henrik Zetterberg and Pavel Datsuk are getting older. They're not getting any younger. They're not getting any faster. Um, Darren Helm is getting older. Um, Nicholas Cronwall is getting up there, and so that's why they're bringing in the Dylan Larkins, the Gustav Nyquist, um, the Thomas Yurkos, and they're sort of at that tipping point where, you know, they may have one or two years left in the window to make the playoffs and maybe make a run, but they're almost to that point where they got to start thinking about reloading or rebuilding. Boston, I really feel that when they gave up Peter Shirelli, who's now at Edmonton, that the decision-making of what they made. They bring in Mac Bolesky from Anaheim and overpay him because Bolesky was playing with guys that are much better than what the Bruins have. And it seems that their decision-making, prolonged with uh, Claude Julian as their coach, they just don't seem to have the same bump and the same firepower and grit that they used to expect from the Bruins. I didn't think they'd take this far, this far of a regression. I didn't think their defense would be this bad. I mean, Tuka Rask would have to play out of his mind to earn some of the wins. Um, you know, the defense is allowing so many greatest scoring chances that it seems that they need, you know, a couple extra players. They need a, some better moves in the draft and with uh, their AHL team. And they also might need a change in voice. Julian has always been, the past couple of years, on the hot seat. And it just might be time for them to make a change and make a voice. We're talking NHL hockey with John Hartsmark. John, who was your pick before the season began to win the Stanley Cup this year? My pick was the Canadians. I really felt that the last couple of playoffs, they had a bitter taste in their mouth. They knew that they were good. They had the the desire to win. I just think they needed to realize that they were playing too desperate, that they were um, playing uh, you know, too, too reckless in a sense. They were flying too much. And I think now... 
with everything that they've done to help out the team, the changes they've made, the people that they've kept, that right now they're the team that just seems like you don't want to play them, you don't want to see them in a playoff because they seem to be a team on a mission. Well, away from hockey, John, we would be remiss in not asking you a couple of other questions outside of the hockey realm. And the first one is you're close to Chicago. Now that the Cubs have been swept in four straight, is there a feeling of of uh, depression in the city of Chicago this morning? Well, there is a little bit of depression. I mean, of course, you know, your team makes the playoffs, makes it to the league championship series, and, you know, they do want more, but... I actually get the feeling that there's um, it's more hope and, and pride, the fact that, you know, maybe we made it this far a year early. You know, look, we're not t- we don't suck anymore, I think is what I've heard a lot. You know, there's the hashtag, we're good now, um, on Twitter and Facebook. And so it sort of feels like that they're, they're no longer the lovable losers. We're the team that always says, wait till next year. I sort of feel like, you know, their time is now. And if they make just one or two changes, they could be a force to be reckoned with. So, yeah, they're depressed. I mean, they didn't win a game. They didn't even hold a lead in the uh, NLCS. But there's a little bit more hope in the air in the Windy City. Well, I was actually rooting for the Cubs. I feel their pain being an Indians fan. But nonetheless, now, (laughs) let's move over to another team that probably had a lot of depression on Sunday morning. And that was the Michigan Wolverines. You were there. Explain the the feeling of the crowd when the play, the punt, or lack thereof, happened. So, you know, the, the uh, we get the incompletion, we get the turnover and downs, we get to the fourth and two, um, and it's crazy. It is loud. It's the loudest I've, been, I've heard it in a long time at the big house. And, um, you know, Blake O'Neill has kept the team in the game. I mean, he had the that huge punt that put you at the two. He had he played really good field posi- uh, flipping field position on the Spartans, and so um, we were all wondering what they were going to do. But we all trust Harbaugh and his, and his team. And then I have never in my life seen close to 112,000 people go silent in a split second. It went from cheering to just silence of disbelief, and. You know, people people were not talking after the game. The only people talking after the game, because we walked from the stadium to dinner, the only people talking were Michigan State fans. The Wolverine faithful were just in that state of shock that they just couldn't believe what just happened. And, you know, people were uh, questioning Blake O'Neill. They were questioning Harbaugh. Why didn't we run the ball? Why didn't we run around and, you know, throw the ball in the air? And me being a coach, I was sort of like, one, I can't get second guess the coach. And two, who knows what, you know, punter X or punter Y or even punter Z would have done in the same situation. I did know that Blake O'Neill, the grad transfer from Weaver State, is Australian. So he's definitely played more Australian rules football. And he um, admitted on, on uh, admitted yesterday and Wednesday that his natural Aussie instincts kicked in and, um, he uh, surprisingly talked to the media yesterday. He didn't have to. Um, and he just sort of said, look, it happened, and we need to move on. I do feel that unlike Michigan teams in the past where they've had some bad losses, that they seem to have a different mental fortitude and, of course, a different coach um, doing this. So hopefully it will be different next week when they take on Minnesota. Well, you know, i got to give O'Neill credit. He's handled this thing with a lot of class. Like you said, he came out and talked to the media yesterday. but <laughs> The things that were happening to him on Sunday and Monday uh, that caused the athletic director to have to come out and, and ask people to just leave him alone for a, a few days, uh, you know, I, I, I got on, I just didn't understand why that was happening. Neither did I. I was floored. Um, I mean, we saw it happen with the kicker um, a couple years ago with Alabama, and but I was just shocked. I mean, you know, Ohio State fans and Big Ten fans, you know, we are educated folk, and so so are all college football fans. They're educated people. They are very knowledgeable, and it's amazing that a game could mean so much to them that they could just fling utter hatred, utter contempt at a kid. I mean, these are kids still. These are 18-, 19-year-olds, 20-year-olds, and it's amazing that with the veil of 
the internet and the computer that they are willing to say stuff that they would never, ever, ever even think of if they were if they were in front of a person in real life. It's amazing how Twitter, Facebook, you know, Snapchat can just cause so much, you know, venom to come out. Because Definitely. of that game, and I thought that that game was one of the best college football games that I've seen in maybe the last five years. It was just a great football game to sit down, mm-hmm. it caught your attention, and you just kept watching it. But no matter what, I did not think, and I really don't put much stock in the polls, I'll say that, but I didn't think mm-hmm. Michigan deserved to drop two spots because they lost that game. It's tough to say. I, you sort of have to say, well, they've got two losses, blah, blah, blah. I agree. In polls, you know, I've gotten to think the college football committee got it right by not bringing out a poll until, you know, November even. You know, the fact that they're waiting this long to see, you know, who's really real because, I mean, look at USC was a top 10 team and they're now in complete and utter disarray. You know, um, uh, Georgia, you know, because they walked in this job to a horrendous, horrendous injury is not doing as well. Um, you know, I'm glad they're still ranked in the top 20. I really felt they deserved that. And I think your feeling about polls and, and everything, I think it's the same way with Harbaugh. Harbaugh's like, we're ranked, we're ranked, we're doing what we're doing, but we need to focus on Minnesota. Um, whether they deserve to drop a couple spots or not, I mean, look at how well Memphis is playing. You know, they, they're coming out of nowhere. Um, Notre Dame has taken care of some important folks. Toledo. And... So, Oh, yeah, Toledo. I can't believe I forgot about Toledo. Yeah, look at what they're doing. I mean, they went into Arkansas. They went into SEC country and defeated them. You know what? Yeah, Arkansas isn't as great as, you know, Memphis. or But they went to their house. Winning on the road in college football is so tough. I mean, that's why I give so much credit to Michigan State because, you know, they're going into enemy territory. But, yeah, look at what Toledo is doing. The fact that, you know, the Toledo coaches – his name is being brought up for the USC job, you know, just shows that what he's doing. And so um, I think that they, that there are other teams deserving and we could sit here for, for like for eons and talk about whether a team deserves to be ranked where they are. Um, I think that's also what makes college football great is that there's so much debate and so much stuff to talk about. Well, John Hartsmark has been our guest tonight. Our, hockey expert here at ultimatesportstalk.com, and also, I guess I could say, our Michigan expert. John, thanks for joining us tonight. Thank you so much. Well, the Michigan-Michigan State game, as you heard me say to John Hartsmark, our guest just a few minutes ago, was probably one of the best college football games I have seen in many a year. It was just a game that from the opening kickoff to the final blown punt by the Wolverines, just a game that kept you entrenched as to what was happening in that contest. And You know, either team could have won the ball game at any point in time up to that final play. It was just the fact that Michigan State came out on top of it. And Michigan punter Blake O'Neill, spoke to the media for the first time yesterday since that game-deciding fumble on the final play. And he talked about just what happened during that play. Just had to get a kick out over, over the top of the shield, and um, mate just went into it as, as any other kick. You know, looked to purchase a snap and, and throw it on my boot as quickly as I can. Obviously, that wasn't, wasn't to be, but, uh, you know, that's football. You make errors and you, you move on. Adversity always sort of asks questions of you as... Uh, as a man, as a player, um, I see a sort of show a bit of character, but look, it's uh, you pick yourself up and, and dust yourself off and move on to the next thing. Obviously, I'd like to take it back if I could, but uh, yeah, that's football. You you live and die by, uh, by by your actions on the field. Class act, Michigan punter Blake O'Neill. Who scored the winning touchdown? Well, in the muck and the ruckus of what happened, maybe you missed the name, but it was defensive back Jalen Watts Jackson. But that Winning touchdown came at a cost. See, the redshirt freshman landed hard on his hip after he was tackled into the end zone by Michigan tight end Jake Butt, all before Michigan State teammates piled on top of him in jubilation. Now, that led to a dislocated and a fractured hip that was feared to be career-ending. 
Watts Jackson was carted off the field and hospitalized following the injury, had a three-hour surgery at the University of Michigan Hospital on Sunday. But Michigan State head coach Mark D'Antonio talked about Jalen Watts Jackson's return to East Lansing. Yeah, Jalen got back last night, last, yesterday afternoon, so he was in the, in the offices yesterday in the training room. Uh, the update is he's, um, it's all set. You know, his hip has been repaired and set. He has to uh, stay off of it for three months, uh, so it's a long process. And, uh, and then after that, he'll begin to be able to, to start rehabbing it. So I'm not sure how long that takes him out. Probably takes him out for spring possibly as well, but we'll see. Um, it just depends on how he, he handles the rehab. And uh, he was in good spirits, um, and a lot of people making, making over. So the man, the legend, is back. The one thing that marred this football game, in my opinion, was the targeting call that was made against Michigan linebacker Joe Bolden in the third quarter of play. It was a suspect targeting penalty at best. And if you heard many of the media members around the country after the game and subsequently during the next few days, it was a penalty that was never should have been called. Never. It appeared that he was pushed and fell on top of Michigan State quarterback Connor Cook, resulting in a helmet-to-helmet hit. Even that was disputable by the angle that they showed on TV. It's hard to know what the intent was, but it looked to me that he was shoved on top of Cook after being blocked, and he fell on Cook without any desire to harm the quarterback. So that ejection, I feel, needs to be looked at and addressed by college football officials immediately. Not only was it called wrong on the field, it was called wrong in the booth by the replay official. That was not a targeting penalty. And that ejection marred that game. This is getting unfair. How do they expect defenders to adjust to an offensive player with no regard to the offensive players adjust in their position? In other words, when a running back is running the ball or a wide receiver is running with the football, that wide receiver can tuck the ball in, and before the tackler has a chance to move down, they can put their head down, and that tackler goes head-to-head, even if they were going for the chest, somewhere between the shoulders and the waist. That's the question. You've got to take into consideration what that runner did to cause that helmet-to-helmet contact. And another thing you've got to take into consideration, if you're going to call it against a defensive player, in my opinion, you've got to call it against an offensive player. How many times do you see a running back or a wide receiver, as I said in the example, put their head down to run over defenders? That's targeting. They're using the top of their helmet. They're using the crown of the helmet to hit somebody. And if they're going to call it on defense, in my opinion, they've got to call it on offense. Number one, Ohio State, 7-0, 3-0 in the Big Ten, is at Rutgers this weekend, 3-3, 1-2 in the Big Ten. That game will be on ABC on Saturday night. It's only the second meeting ever between the two schools, with Ohio State winning the first matchup last year in Columbus. Still, Urban Meyer is excited about this game because New Jersey seems to be one of those places the Buckeyes and Meyer have always recruited well in. I think it's very much like Ohio. I think uh, the respect I have for the high school coaches, the seriousness that they take in not just coaching football, but uh, you know, you get those really good New Jersey high schools, man. It's it's I think where it's a lot like here. You know, about the attention to detail, about the academic, about the character, about all the things that you look for, and that's normally what. My history is that's what you get out of New Jersey, and that's why we love it. Ohio State is looking to extend the nation's longest winning streak to 21 games and its conference regular season winning streak to 28, which is one shy of the NCAA record set by Florida State of the ACC from 1992 through 1995. Meyer announced on Wednesday his plan to start J.T. Barrett at quarterback on Saturday, taking the place of Cardell Jones. It was a decision by the sound of his voice that was a hard one to make. JT's earned the right to start uh, Saturday at Rutgers. Oh, just uh, sheer production. You know, uh, uh, Cardell is going to be on, on a very active part, too. We're hopefully to keep him very much involved. So it was a difficult decision, but uh, red zone production and third down production were the two areas that made the difference. And, uh, 
um, here in the, with the way he played Saturday. And Meyer realizes making a change at quarterback at this point in the season, no matter what the reason, is a very delicate situation for the team. It's always delicate, and that one's probably more because of the obvious. And, uh, you know, there's, you know, someone made a comment, you know, do you really care who plays quarterback the other day? And absolutely we care. Care who plays guard. You know, we're not, it's not number what is a 16 and number 12 those are peoples and those are peoples that we care about deeply and so and we're not ashamed to say that we might operate a little this is not a business here this is not you know just do what's we're going to do what's right for the team first but there does, does the individual and all that take a matter within the confines of this building more than anybody will ever know and so and we're extremely proud of that is that always the right thing to do in my opinion it is so that's Really, the only opinion that counts, and I know our coaches all agree with that, and more importantly, our players agree with that. Rutgers coach Kyle Flood is proud of his team coming back from a 25-point deficit to Indiana last Saturday and winning on the final play of the game on a field goal, 55-52. But now come the Buckeyes into Piscataway, the number one team in the country. The first time Rutgers has hosted a number one team in 13 years, and Rutgers will be looking for its first win over a number one team. So... Is Flood sure that the Scarlet Knight fans are ready for Saturday night? Well, they're certainly excited about it. There's no question. If it's not a sellout, I'm sure it'll be announced as a sellout here shortly. Uh, but, uh, but they're really excited about it, and they should be. Uh, what I've said to uh, the people that have asked me is, hey, this is, this is life in the Big Ten. You know, this is not going to be uh, a, one, a one-time occurrence. So there's no question this won't be the last time that a really talented, uh, well-coached football team comes to Piscataway. It won't be the last time. Buckeyes coach Urban Meyer is going for career win number 150. Ohio State has won 15 consecutive true road games, the longest streak in the nation. So it's number one Ohio State, 7-0 at Rutgers Saturday night on ABC. Rutgers 3-3 coming into this game. Well, elsewhere around college football, around the top 25 schedule, tonight there are two games going on at 7 o'clock on ESPN2. Number 22, Temple, will be at East Carolina. And at 9 o'clock on ESPN, number 20, California, travels to UCLA. Tomorrow night on ESPN at 8 o'clock, number 18, Memphis, 6-0 on the year, will be at 3-3, Tulsa. Then the game's at Saturday, first of all at noon on ESPN. Houston, number 21 in the country at 6-0, will be at UCF. Also at noon on ABC, number 6, Clemson, will be at Miami of Florida. At noon on ESPNU, number 25, Pittsburgh, will be at Syracuse. Also at noon on ESPNU, it will be Iowa State at number 2, Baylor, 6-0. At 3 o'clock on ESPN3, number 19, Toledo, 6-0, goes to Massachusetts to face the 1-5 Mass Men. Also at 3.30 on ABC, the 4-3 Indiana Hoosiers go to number 7, Michigan State. They're unbeaten at 7-0. On ESPNU at 3.30, Duke, number 23 on the year, goes to Virginia Tech. At 3.30 on CBS Sports, the SEC game of the week, Tennessee, will be at number 8, Alabama. On ABC at 3.30, Texas Tech goes to number 17, Oklahoma. And also at 3.30 on Saturday, Kansas, winless on the year, will be at Oklahoma State, number 14 in the country. They are Unbeaten at 6-0. Now at 7 o'clock on ESPN2, Florida State, number 9 in the country, goes to Georgia Tech. Western Kentucky will be at LSU. They're number 5 and unbeaten at 6-0. At 7.30 on Fox, Utah, number 3 in the country, will be at Southern California in that game. That one should be a very good one. And Utah coach Kyle Winningham talks about the growth of his starting quarterback, Travis Wilson. He's playing his best football as a U, without a question. He's been starting for us for three and a half years now. He started midway through his freshman year. That's when he took over. And uh, really last year, at the end of the year, you could start to see a a transformation in Travis, uh, starting to play with more confidence, more poise. That carried over into this year, and he's he's doing just that. He's playing uh, very confidently, and uh, you know he's a leader for us now. And whereas before he was kind of unassuming and didn't really uh, warm up to that role as a leader, but this year he's he's uh, he's doing a great job in that capacity. This week he got USC. They're the team that the Pac-12 media picked in the preseason to win the conference. Obviously lots of turmoil. Steve Sarkeesian's not there. They've lost a couple of games in a row. Still pretty dynamic talent. What are the matchups that concern you the most when you face USC this season? All of them. They're, they're, you mentioned talent, and I don't think there's a coach in the Pac-12 that'll 
disagree that uh, SC year in and year out has the most talent of anybody in the conference. Uh, this year is no different. Uh, you know, Juju Smith-Schuster, the receiver, is a tremendous player. Uh, the defense is loaded with guys like Dory Jackson who can do a lot of things uh, both sides of the ball and in the kick return game. So they present a lot of concerns for us. Also on Saturday night on ESPN, it will be Texas A&M number 15 going to Ole Miss number 24. Stuart Mandel previews this matchup in an unofficial SEC West elimination game. Ole Miss this week gets back All-American tackle Laramie Tunzel, who missed the first seven games serving a suspension for NCAA issues. It's extremely timely for the Rebels because he will be going up against the Aggies' premier pass rushers in Miles Garrett and Deshaun Hall. All Miss's problem is that it hasn't been able to run the ball. That was evident again in last week's surprising loss to Memphis. The Aggies aren't a great rushing team themselves, but they've got some great receivers, starting with Christian Kirk, who can make big plays on the outside. I believe Kyle Allen, the A&M's quarterback, will rebound from his terrible performance against Alabama, go into Oxford, and lead his team to a close, high-scoring victory. And elsewhere in the top 25 on Saturday night at 10.30 on ESPN, Washington, 3-3 three and three on the year, will be at 5-1 and one and number 10 ranked Stanford. Well, the Cleveland Browns lost to the Denver Broncos at home on Sunday afternoon in overtime, 23-20. to But that really isn't the story. The story is, is Peyton Manning really on his last leg in his NFL career, or should we say his last throw? Well, Peter King talked about that with CBS Sports' Brad Sesmat, and they discussed the latest about Peyton Manning and his future in the NFL. I think that... Uh be hard not to be a believer in you know obviously you're a believer in the in the in the patriots um my i'd say probably the team that i'm a little skeptical about right now you know i'm skeptical about the denver broncos um it's crazy to say that obviously when you're they're six and oh you got peyton manning as your quarterback and you got a top three defense in the nfl but Peyton Manning has become a liability, and uh, never thought I'd say that, but uh, they're winning in spite of Peyton Manning right now. And look, they have we have a story on our site on the MMQB today by Robert Klemko, who's got some staunch defense from guys in the in Manning's locker room in Denver. Uh, basically, leave our quarterback alone. We're six and zero. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people who'd like to have our quarterback right now. How much off his fastball has Peyton Manning lost? To me, it's like, uh, you know, and again, it's, it's like if you were Matt Harvey and you threw 98 and all of a sudden you came back the next year and you were trying to get by with all off speed stuff and your fastball is down to 87. Mm. That's what he is right now. But look, I, I'm, I'm not. I, I, I'm not in general sort of a revolutionary type of guy when it comes to lineup changes. And look, if the Broncos were two and four right now and Manning had the worst touchdown to interception ratio in the league, then I might say might be time to go to Osweiler. Mm-hmm. The problem is, at least in my opinion, is nobody has any idea if Osweiler can do it. Right, and it'd be it'd be different if your backup quarterback was Mike Vick or, or or you know a guy who'd started fifty or seventy five or hundred games. You sort of knew what you were getting. It'd be even different if you had Matt Castle, even though he hasn't been a great player. But you know what you're getting. I just think that the thought of playing Brock Osweiler now and inserting him on a six and zero team, especially you come off the bye. And again, I, I, not that you have to make lineup decisions because of this. You want Brock Osweiler to go head to head coming out of the bye against Aaron Rodgers and then at Andrew Luck? Hmm. I, I, I wouldn't if I were the Denver Broncos. Peter King joining us via Skype from New York City. The MMQB, great content there, day in and day out to check out several times per day. On the Cardinals' end of things, so losing at Pittsburgh to a third string quarterback, there's been some panic in the streets out here. It is losing to Pittsburgh, a very good team. 
Now they have a spot in their schedule where the Ravens have not played well at all, and then they have the Browns, and then the bye week. What do you make out of the Cardinals after the Pittsburgh loss? Well, I was surprised. I was particularly surprised that they scored 13 points. Uh, and I think, think Pittsburgh now, what I take out of that game is Pittsburgh defense better than I think most people thought. Landry Jones better than most people thought. Brad, you've seen a hundred times more of Landry Jones than I have because I'm not a big college football watcher. Hmm. But he played very well. And, and I'm just telling you, having been to Steelers camp this past summer, Landry Jones was not even a lock to make this roster. So I think the fact that he played and played well is a huge bonus uh, for Pittsburgh. And as far as Arizona goes, look, I think that you know the, the two things I noticed coming out of that game is that, look, against Detroit, they had an excellent day running the ball. Mm-hmm. And against Pittsburgh, they had a lousy day running the ball. And I think that has something to do with the defense you're playing, obviously. But Carson Palmer is not to the le- not to the stage of his career, and you know, hardly any quarterback ever would be, where if it's always second and nine, second and eight, that you're going to be in good shape. And I think Carson Palmer needs the help of his running game. And I think that would be the focus. I mean, if I'm Bruce Arians this week at practice, that would be the focus going into Baltimore and then going against Cleveland. We simply have to run the ball better. Well, every team has to run the ball better. That is no secret to winning in the NFL. And tonight, a team that depends upon the run to get their quarterback going in Russell Wilson, the Seattle Seahawks. They will be in San Francisco taking on the 49ers on the Thursday night game of the week. I'm going to take Seattle to win that football game. The possibility does exist that Buffalo wide receiver Percy Harvin isn't just missing Sunday's game against Jacksonville in London. He may have played his final football game, period. Reports say Harvin has told friends he is contemplating retirement from the NFL at the age of 27 because of that injury to his hip. Well, the Bills, as I said, will be in Jacksonville to take on the Jaguars. I'm going to take the Bills to win that game. That game's being played at Wembley Stadium in London, and you can watch it on Yahoo.com. It's the first NFL game to be streamed live on Yahoo. It will kick off at 9.30 in the morning on Sunday. The 1 o'clock games on Sunday afternoon, it will be the Cleveland Browns in St. Louis taking on the Rams on CBS. I'm taking the Rams to win that one. Tampa Bay will be in Washington to play the Redskins at 1 o'clock on Fox. I'm taking Washington to win that one. The Falcons should win on the road at Tennessee on Fox at 1 o'clock. See, it is the Saints going to Indianapolis to play the Colts, and I'm taking Andrew Luck and the Colts as they seem to be on a roll now. The Vikings will be in Detroit. The Lions are coming off of their first win. The Vikings, though, should get a win in Detroit on the road. Will Big Ben start, or will it be Landry Jones? Well, Pittsburgh will be playing at Kansas City without Jamal Charles. I'm going to take the Steelers to win that game, especially if Big Ben does play. Elsewhere around the league at 1 o'clock on CBS, the Texans will be in Miami to play the Dolphins. I've got the Dolphins winning that contest. The Patriots stay unbeaten as they are at home to host the New York Jets at 1 o'clock on CBS. The Chargers will be at home to take on the Raiders on Sunday afternoon. And the Chargers are 2-4, and four, but not because of Phillip Rivers, who is on a pace to break passing records set by Peyton Manning and Drew Brees. Christina Balboni of Fox Sports reports. The Chargers may be 2-4, and four, but it isn't because of Phillip Rivers' lack of offensive production. Rivers has thrown for 2,116 yards in six games, which puts him on pace to shatter Peyton Manning's single-season yards record set in 2013. Not to mention, Rivers has also completed 177 of 253 pass attempts. If he keeps it up, he has a chance to break Drew Brees' record for most completions in a season set in 2011. There's still a long way to go this year. Hope the training staff has plenty of ice for that arm. Well, the reason that he is throwing so much is because of the fact that his team cannot run the football. Elsewhere at 425 on Fox Sunday afternoon, the Dallas Cowboys will be in New York to take on the Giants without Tony Romo, without Des Bryant. They're going with Matt Castle to start at quarterback in that game as far as the Cowboys are. The Giants appear to be healthy. Jean-Pierre Paul may play. 
I'm going to take the Giants to win that game. And on the Sunday night game of the week on NBC, the Philadelphia Eagles are in Carolina to take on the Panthers. Cam Newton may have come of age last week, but I'm going to take the Eagles to win this football game. And finally, on Monday night, has anyone played a tougher schedule so far than the Baltimore Ravens? I think not. The Ravens will be in Arizona to take on the Cardinals. And again, if the Cardinals run the football successfully, they win. If they don't run the football successfully, they lose. I think they do win the football game and thus run the football successfully. And that's a look at the NFL schedule for this weekend. Lo and behold, the Cleveland Cavaliers have re-signed forward Tristan Thompson. It was made official today by General Manager David Griffin, who announced that the that from the Cleveland Clinic courts, per league and team policy, terms of the contract were not released, of course. But Matt Moore reports on, was this really needed? Tristan Thompson, who has agreed to a five-year, $82 million deal with the Cleveland Cavaliers, ending his prolonged holdout in restricted free agency. Thompson's value has been fiercely debated this summer as both sides were unable to come to a conclusion. The first deal that, that Thompson and the Cavs had reportedly been close to agreeing to back on July 1st, July 1st was $80 million. So in all that time, all this holdout, all this drama, he made $2 million more. Which, hey, it's $2 million more, seems like an awful lot of money to me, but in the grand scheme of things, isn't that much. Still, he got to miss out on preseason, and he does get the five-year deal that he was looking for with the Cavaliers. The Cavaliers get a, a really talented power forward with a lot of potential that is going to help them win games now. That was really the goal here. They needed to get him in case Anderson Barajal got hurt or Timothy Mozgov were to leave next summer as an unrestricted free agent. Keeping him was more important to the Cavaliers than maybe his overall value in a vacuum might have indicated. This is a good deal for both sides, even if it was messy along the way. The NBA regular season will begin on Tuesday night. And Duke coach Mike Krzyzewski announced this week that his run as coach of the United States men's basketball national team will end after the 2016 Olympics next summer. Zam Vincini talks about who should be the next coach. My answer is pretty clear. There are clearly a lot of uh, potential replacements for him. You look at Billy Donovan, Tom Izzo, Sean Miller just led the U19 team in Crete to a gold medal. Uh, but to me, it's Greg Popovich. This would be the culmination for him of what's been a long, successful, really terrific career in the NBA with the Spurs. He's a great X's and O's coach, a great guy that makes personnel decisions. Uh, plus, he's really well-respected among NBA players, and that's a really important part of this team. You have to engender that respect uh, among players, or else it's going to be really hard for you to actually succeed in this job, just given the constraints of time involved. Uh, like I said, there are plenty of other options. You could even look at Doc Rivers in the NBA as another one. Uh, but Popovich, I think, is the guy that would handle this the best. I know that he would be 68 years old, basically, whenever he takes this over. But to me, uh, the age really wouldn't be a major thing unless he really thought it was one. To me, Greg Popovich is, simply put, the best basketball coach on the planet right now. To me, there's only two choices, Popovich or Tom Izzo of Michigan State. That's going to do it for tonight's show. Thanks so much for joining us this evening on the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. Don't forget, tomorrow night we will be on the air with Waynedale High School Football on UltimateSportsTalk.com. They will be over in Rittman. Patrick Mitchell and I will be on the air with Golden Bear Rewind at 6 o'clock. The PNC Bank pregame show starts at 6.30 and the kickoff. From Rittman between the Indians and the Bears will begin at 7 o'clock. That's tomorrow night here on UltimateSportsTalk.com. Our thanks to John Hartsmark, our NHL and Michigan expert, for being our guest here this evening on our show. Also, our thanks to Greg Mitchell for producing the program. But most of all, our thanks go out to you for listening. I'm Dave Mitchell. Until next Thursday night at 7 o'clock with another Ultimate Sports Talk show. Have a good week, everybody. Good night.